You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. I was in New York City recently, and I was walking out of Penn Station when this building across the street caught my eye. It was this stately neoclassical structure with these rows of tall Greek columns, and above them there was this frieze running the length of the building, and the frieze was inscribed with these big capital letters. But what they spelled out gave me a little jolt. I don't know. It was just so grand. I expected to see Latin. But the inscription said, Neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. And of course, Grant, you know what building that is. That's the Green Lantern headquarters. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, that's the U.S. Postal Service. Yes, that's the James Farley Post Office there. But, you know, it made me think about what we expect to read when we see something that somebody's taken all the trouble to inscribe in stone. For some reason, I was expecting Latin, although I did find out later that this saying is actually a translation of the ancient Greek historian Herodotus. It didn't originate with the U.S. Postal Service. There's a a part of uh, the history of Herodotus where he talks about the efficient messengers of the Persian Empire. You know, there's uh, messages like this on buildings uh, across the world, and a lot of them, of course, have that that classical idea going back to ancient Greece or uh, ancient Rome. And and there's one over the entrance to the Goodhue building at the Los Angeles Public Library. And it says, books invite all, they constrain none. And the simplicity and the perfection of that message is just, oh, it's a chef's kiss. (laughs) That's (laughs) exactly right. But you know, there are other messages for other buildings that you might not see. And sometimes they're over houses. And there's One I found especially charming. It was in a a journal, an old journal from the 1800s. And it was on a small house in the UK. And it's in Latin. And it's parva sed apta mihi. But in English, it means small, but just right for me. And yeah, you know, a little cottage, you know, with a little bit of garden and just some place you can sit. And it's exactly what you want. And there's another one in the in the same uh, bit of journal, and it's uh, also in Latin, but I'll give you the English. And it says, as the body is to the mind, so the house is to the body. This hmm. house is an organism where all the pieces work together to produce this, this feeling of an entity. And I just love that over the door as you enter, that you acknowledge that you are entering into this space that is all working in concert to create mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. this this feeling, this presence that a house has. Yeah, that's a lovely sentiment. I'm suspecting that uh, the listeners have more too. Is there a particular inscription or an epigraph over a building that you know and love? Uh, Something that strikes you as funny or poignant or moving? Please share. We'd love to hear them and we'll share them back with everyone else. 877-929-9673. That's toll free in the United States and Canada. Email us, words at waywardradio.org, or talk to us on Twitter. Our handle is at wayward, W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, Grant. My name's Kelly Goddard. I'm calling from Tallahassee, Florida. Hello, Kelly. Welcome to the show. I'm calling about, um, uh, it's kind of a game, but it's also, I guess, an exclamation that my grandmother um, it passed down from my grandmother. Um, she played it with her her siblings when she was 
younger and then as an adult. And it, it's it's only played around the holidays, specifically Christmas, and it's, it's called Christmas Gift. It's kind of like a, almost like a tag game. So it's like the first person to say Christmas Gift is the winner, but you don't really win anything <laughs> except oh, for bragging don't. rights. Just bragging rights. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how we play it. Um, and so for us, it's always just been like, who can say Christmas gets first? Um, but I was just really curious. I never knew anybody as I was growing up. I never knew anyone else that played that game. Um, but then my daughter, she's now a senior in high school, but when she was in middle school, she had a friend whose family played Christmas gift. <laughs> and mm-hmm. they were like, I've never, ever heard of another family that did this. <laughs> And so it just got me thinking where it came from, and I was curious. How does it work? Okay, for instance, if we are, let's just say, uh, after Thanksgiving, um, game on. (laughs) Oh, okay. And if the phone rings and you think it might be, I mean, nowadays it's super easy with caller ID, but before, caller ID, I remember my grandmother would just answer the phone. Christmas gift. (laughs) (laughs) So no one could get her. <laughs> like it gets more competitive towards Christmas. <laughs> and then the ultimate winner is Christmas Day. Like whoever says Christmas gifts <laughs> on Christmas Day, you are the ultimate winner. <laughs> so you get one chance the whole season to say Christmas gift to the other person first and then that's it? Well, no. Every time you see them, it's like, oh, oh I, I got you. I got you. Oh, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> You try to sneak up on people, like you get you really quietly <laughs> arrive to the house. That's ridiculous. And... <laughs> it really is ridiculous. That sounds fun though. There's no gift. There's no 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 prize. No, no prize. Oh, but, there, Just bragging but other rights. people have played it that way. Well, yeah, I'm fascinated that your family plays it for so long because the tradition I'm familiar with is you just say it on Christmas Day or maybe Christmas Eve. Would you believe you can actually find Civil War letters where guys are writing back home and wishing people Christmas gift? Or, oh, my you know, goodness. Yeah. Yeah, it goes wow. way, way back. And um, other versions of it early on um, would involve, like, people, like you said, sneaking up to a house and, and knocking on the door and saying <laughs> Christmas gift. And and the recipient was supposed to um, to oblige with a gift to those people, an actual <laughs> gift, like popcorn or uh, homemade <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah, or yeah. fruit, maybe an apple or an orange. There is one more extreme version if you want it. Yeah, I would. Uh, so one of the one of the citations in the Dictionary of Southern Appalachian English describes people getting up early on Christmas morning, usually the children. They go to their nearest neighbor's house secretly and quietly, and then they quote serenade them by banging pots and pans and setting off firecrackers. <laughs> and then when the neighbors come out to say what in tarnation, they yell Christmas gift. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Yep, that's a li- that's that's way farther than we've ever gone. <laughs> we've never woken anyone up with pots and pans and firecrackers. <laughs> Kelly, there's always next Christmas. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we can start planning, Martha. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for sharing these memories oh, with us. It sounds like guys have great you. fun. 
Yeah, it is a lot of fun. And thanks for thanks for taking my call and my question. I appreciate All right. it. All right. Be well. Christmas gift to you. All right. Thanks, you guys. <laughs> thanks, Kelly. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, we'd love to hear your vaguely linguistic folkloric traditions, <laughs> <laughs> whatever holiday they're attached to or not, 877-929-9673, or email words at waywardradio.org, or tell us the details on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, um, I'm Susanna King, and I'm calling from Aiken, South Carolina. And Hi, my dad had an interesting expression that he would use. Um, it started when I was a baby. Um, my parents used to feed me baby food mixed with baby cereal and fruit in it. And it was sort of this sticky, gooey mess. And my dad would call it slumgolian. And it sort of stuck with our family whenever anyone was eating something like oatmeal with a bunch of stuff in it. He would call it slumgolian. And it's such an odd word. He's the only person I've ever used heard use that word. So I was wondering if you'd ever heard anyone else call sort of sloppy, goopy stuff slumgolian. Slumgolian. <laughs> That's great. Did he yeah. give you any clue? Did you ever quiz him about it? You know, I never did. It was just always the family story was, oh, that's what he called the baby food that you ate when you were little. It doesn't sound very appetizing. <laughs> no, and I guess it, it really kind of wasn't, was it? <laughs> but here you are, an adult. It worked. <laughs> you survived the Slumgolian. Yes. Well, there is a great story about Slumgolian, and it oh. has to do with the gold rush days in the United States. During the California gold rush, uh, there was a lot of high-volume mining, and it involved, as it still does, a lot of water, just huge amounts of water running through soil, and it flushes away the lighter stuff and leaves behind the heavier bits, and this makes it easier to find the gold. And mm -hmm. what is created from this, the stuff that is discarded, is this gross, muddy waste mixture, uh, <laughs> and this is was called slumgullion. And we oh know the goodness. term was used in California during the gold rush as early as 1853. Um, one report from the time describes it as, quote, a softer sediment which settles lightly on the surface of the sand, a slippery yellow mud that looks like a large pond of cake batter, just ready for baking, yet with a glazed surface reflecting the surrounding scenery as beautifully as water could do it. But I'm sure it did not taste like cake batter. Uh, you wouldn't eat it, obviously. Um, and the word itself, you can break down the two parts. The slum part is probably related to the word slime. Slum, slime, you can kind of hear it. Not related mm -hmm. at all to the, a bad urban neighborhood. Just a different word completely mm -hmm. than, than that kind of slum. The gullion part is either related to a word meaning a muddy hole or a cesspool. That makes a lot of sense. Although it could mm -hmm. be related to the same word gullion, meaning a type of severe stomachache in horses. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and there's another little interesting fact. It's got a connection to Moby Dick and and haunting of whales. In 1851, Herman Melville published Moby Dick, and in there he refers to the discarded offal, O F F A L, and the waste from the butchering of whales as slobgolion. That's S L O B G O L L I O N. Um, and his description here it is. is in his words. 
It is an ineffably oozy, stringy affair, most frequently found in the tubs of sperm oil, after a prolonged squeezing and subsequent decanting. I hold it to be the wondrously thin, ruptured membranes of the case, coalescing. Ew, <laughs> that sounds writes, awful. <laughs> nobody writes like Melville. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, slumgullion is S-L-U-M-G-U-L-L-I-O-N. So you can hear that they're spelled very similar and they sound very similar. So, so that word that he used, Susanna, that slumgullion, when he was feeding you baby food, has got all this history connected to it. It's from the gold rush days. That's really neat. And I'm so glad that it's, it's part of California history, too, because that really connects to my family. Yeah, cool, right? Thank you for sharing that with us, and we're so happy that you called. Thank you very much. Take care now. Bye-bye. Thanks, Susanna. Bye. 877-929-9673. More about language and how we use it as Away With Words continues. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. And we're joined by John Chinesky, who has a gleam in his eye and joy in his voice. He's our quiz guy. Hi, John. Hi, Grant. Hi, Martha. I've got a puzzle a quiz in my hands as well. So let's get started. Now, this quiz came from a, an idea by my friend, puzzle constructor David Ellis Dickerson. Uh, his challenge was to find a two-word title, which, when the two words are switched, they still make a pretty good title. Now, this, we're going to work with uh, uh, books and movies today. I'll describe for you a new work based on the new title, and I'll give you the original title's author, maybe the director. You identify the new title and, of course, the original title. For example, if I said, this new work by Stephen King is a book about a dog owned by a gravedigger, the answer would be Cemetery Pet. Right. Of course, oh, the, original, right, the original is Pet Cemetery, though this spelling is debatable. So you get how it works? Yes. Yep. Yes, you do. Good. Then let's try a few. And I wish you luck good. Here we go. This new classic, collected by the Brothers Grimm, is simply an examination of how winter precipitation gets its color through light refraction. Winter precipitation gets its color through light refraction. White snow? White snow. Yes, exactly. Or, Or lack of color, I should have said. Yeah, very good. This new classic from George Orwell is simply a book-length description of a nondescript cow. (laughs) Farm animal. Farm animal. Farm animal. Just farm animal. Now we go to the movies. Let's go to the movies. From George Lucas, a biography of a soldier who has been a key player in several major conflicts. (laughs) War stars. War's star, right. War's star. War's star, yeah. (laughs) Only Charlie Chaplin could create a new classic based solely on a family of typeface fonts. Eh? Charlie Chaplin, typeface fonts, a new classic. Hmm. Roman times? (laughs) Times Yeah, one of the words close. It's uh, it's something, it's modern times. Times modern. (laughs) Times modern, yes, as opposed to modern times. Finally, from director Greta Gerwig, a new classic about an old reclusive woman who eschews cats. She instead keeps parrots and parakeets. Something bird. What was that? Yeah. Saoirse Ronan, right? Yeah. 
Something. Was it Lady Bird? Bird Lady. Bird yeah. Lady. <laughs> yes, Bird Lady instead of Lady Bird. Yes, very good. Well, guys, done well <laughs> and well done. They both mean the same thing, and you did very, very well on that quiz. Good job. Give our best to the family. Will do. Thanks you so too. Much, Bye-bye. John. Bye-bye. We'd love to talk with you, too, about any aspect of language whatsoever. Slang, word origins, grammar, give us a call, 877-929-9673, or send your questions and stories about language to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, yes, my name is Grace. I'm calling from Savannah, Georgia. Hey, Grace, welcome. Hi, Grace, what's on your mind? Hi, yes, I am in school down here for industrial design, and I'm learning a 3D modeling software where we learn to prototype and 3D print objects. And one of the most useful functions in the program is called a Boolean. It's B-O-O-L-E-A-N. And it's so much fun to say, and we use it all of the time because in order to make complex shapes in this program, you have to do it by building upon simple geometric shapes. And so it kind of works as a 3D Venn diagram. And depending on what you need to build, you can have it take away certain parts of an object where they overlap um, or leave only that section where they overlap. And so I was just wondering if you guys had ever heard of that term because it's so out of place in the tech world that it just seemed so bizarre. Boolean. So it's like somebody invented a word out of out of just letters or syllables. That is what it feels like. That's really what it feels like. <laughs> that w- I wouldn't put it past the tech world. <laughs> <laughs> really? Right. Yes. I have a story for you, Grace. There's a, a great story here. And it, it starts with a poor boy, an English poor boy, largely self-taught, born to a lady's maid and a shoemaker, who went on to lay some fundamental foundations that are still used today in computing, in neuroscience, in logic, and mathematics. You want to hear it? Okay. Yes, and I was just about to say that my younger brother's learning to code, and he was familiar with the term from that, and I just thought how bizarre that it's in both places. Yes, please. So this boy, his father, was also brilliant in mathematics. However, he was very poor and could work only as a shoemaker, but he taught his son some mathematics, and this son... had a tutor in Latin, but otherwise uh, had no schooling, taught himself Greek, however, and French and German, and was brilliant enough to work as a teacher at 16, published some sophisticated mathematics papers in professional journals while still in his teens, then was hired as a professor at Queens College in Cork, eventually becoming a dean at that college, a position he held until his death. So this guy, undegreed, but universally agreed to be brilliant. So this guy's name is George. I'll give you his last name in a minute. Um, His mathematical papers developed the algebraic idea that differential equations could be used to solve any mathematical problem, resulting in either the answer zero or one. And so that's the binary language of computers beginning to form right there although it took many more decades and the work of many others to make it happen. Additionally, his algebraic logic intended to allow putting argument and thought into logical 
regular structure, and he published a paper on this in 1847. And so this is why we call things Boolean. His name was George Boole, B-O-O-L-E. And so this is why, for example, when you do a search on the internet, you search for apples or oranges, not bananas, that or and 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 not, those are Boolean operators. And those come from George Boole. Those are part of his logic. And so all of this Boolean stuff comes from the work of George Boole, uh, born in 1815, uh, who was a brilliant autodidact. Wow, that is fascinating. And it also sounds like the same way that you search a library catalog, like how they store library information when you're looking for specific things. Yep, that's right. That's the man. Now, obviously, like all fields, a lot of his work uh, took time to see uh, fruition. Other people used his work to base their work on. And uh, obviously, it's a a series of people working together over the the decades and even the centuries to, to come to what we have now. But it's fundamental, and, and his name being attached to this as Boolean is a, is a credit to his original foundational work that he did. There's a reason his name is attached to it, because it was so important. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> All righty, I will definitely have to look him up. I really appreciate you guys taking my call. That's amazing information. Thanks for calling, Grace. And good luck with your work. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. All righty, bye-bye. Toll-free in the U.S. and Canada, 877-929-9673. We heard from Lenny Lefebvre in Corona, California. She works in veterinary medicine, and she once worked in a clinic in Washington State where the staff decided that they needed some kind of code that they could use over the loudspeaker if a client got particularly unruly. And they found out that there's a code that's used in medical facilities for when somebody gets disruptive and the staff needs an authority figure to come in and de-escalate things, and that's Paging Dr. Armstrong. (laughs) That makes good sense. Yeah. Dr. Armstrong. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but when I worked in IT, one of the companies I worked for, we would uh, forward sales calls to to, uh, Mr. Springfield, which was a dead-end voicemail box that we never never emptied. Got that from The Simpsons. That's just a Springfield. (laughs) Oh, oh, oh. (laughs) (laughs) 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hey, this is Nias from, from Las Cruces, New Mexico. Hi, Nias. Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? What's on your mind today? Uh, yeah, so my word is rinktums. And it's, uh, it's a tradition in our family on my mom's side that, uh, like, so we use this term rinktums whenever someone gets a new haircut. And mm-hmm. if we see them, like, we see them walk into the room and we say rinktums, before they say no ring thumbs, then we get to ball our fists and um, run our knuckles up the back of their head. And yeah, but if they say no ring thumbs first, then we're obviously they cancel that out. Ow. Oh boy. So <laughs> ring thumbs and noogies yeah. is what this sounds like. Ring thumbs, like R I N K T U M S, ring thumbs? Um, I, I would spell it R I N C T U M S, but obviously the K is there as well. Like it's, it could go both ways. I've talked to like other family members and they spell it with the K. 
Oh, so it's more than just your immediate family. It's your broader family? Yeah, so my whole, like all my uncles and cousins on my mom's side. And it's mostly done in the males of the family, but of course you can do it to females, but you don't because we want to do it sometimes to hurt the other person. (laughs) That totally is a dude thing. And so is this just (laughs) in New Mexico or outside the state? Uh, Just in New Mexico, but... Well, it started originally in New Mexico. Well, and yes, this sounds painful. How do you feel about rinktums? Um, I like it because, you know, I, I like it whenever I'm able to do it to my, my cousins or my brother <laughs> or, or my dad. So. But obviously I don't like I haven't got a haircut in about four years probably because <laughs> of that. <laughs> well, lots of long haired people in your family, Aeneas, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it's like getting noogies. Yeah, it's basically like a noogie, but you run it like so you ball up your fist and run the knuckles up the back of the neck up to the top of the head. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it's just like one swift motion. Mm-hmm. And I've asked around. I've never heard like no one else has heard of it outside of my immediate family, like my mom's side of the family. Well, you'll be interested to know that this tradition goes way back to at least the early part of the 20th century. There's a really funny article that uh, ran on the Associated Press wires back in uh, 1921, and it was talking about the newest fad at the University of Texas. Um, And they called the fad rinktums and scrapings. And let me just read a little bit of this Mm -hmm. article to you. you. You will appreciate this. When a student gets his hair cut or trimmed and sallies forth on the campus, the other students have the right to declare rinktums on him. In case he yells vincure rinktums before the unshorn students declare their right, he is safe from all harm. The foiled students then have recourse. They're shouting scrapings, and the shaven-headed student has the same right as to shouting vincure scrapings. Rinktums consist of a heated rub with the knuckles on that part of the cranium that is more fully exposed on account of the recent hair trimming. It's a common sight on the university campus to see a student walking about with a fresh haircut and shouting, Vink your rinktums and vink your scrapings at every cluster of student he sees. <laughs> so this is like a Pokemon battle, really. <laughs> yeah, they use the reverse card. <laughs> yeah. So so wait a second here. So basically what's happening is I've gotten a haircut. Others have the right to declare rinktums on me, but yep. I can yell vinkier rinktums to stop the knuckle attack, but they can yell scrapings to stop my stopping, <laughs> or I can yell vinkier scrapings to stop their stopping of my stopping, and I can yell vinkier rinktums <laughs> and vinkier scrapings to stop all the stopping and make sure that nobody knuckles my head. <laughs> Well said. Yeah, or like Aeneas, you can say uh, no rinktums. <laughs> no rinktums. <laughs> I think Aeneas's version is simpler and still allows dudes to be dudes and, like, knuckle each other's noggins. Yeah. <laughs> it would have got too complicated and, uh, if we allowed all those counter-strikes in our family. Oh, yeah, it would just be a fist fight every time, right? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, that's yeah, so... crazy because my grandpa actually went to the University of Texas. And so and he's the one that started it or that like that we can trace it back to and, and my mom's side of the family. So maybe that's where he got it from. Oh, oh interesting. I, I'd be interested to find out when he went there. Um, yeah, that so that lasted for a while. It showed up. So what was that date, Martha? 19... 1921. Yeah, it lasted into the 1920s at the University of Texas. And who knows how much further. Yeah, I think that 
should be about the time my grandpa was over in that area as well. Well, how about that? Well, Niaz, thank you so much for sharing this family story with us. It's, uh, it's we appreciate more it. widespread than you might think. <laughs> Take care, dude. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, bye. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org or talk to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Welcome to Away With Words. Oh, hello. Hi there. This is Julie. Hi. I'm calling from northern Michigan. Years ago, I was when I was married to my first husband, um, my mother-in-law, who was a wonderfully high-spirited woman with family roots in Texas and New Mexico, would often say, like when encountering a mass or evidence of rambunctiousness, or just rambunctious behavior in general, that someone was tearing up Jake. And so, like, if our children had made a mess while playing, she'd explain that the room looked like someone was tearing up Jake in here, or if the if her grandkids were playing wildly, they were just out there tearing up Jake. Tearing up Jake. You know, the usual name is Jack instead of Jake. There are a lot of variations, too. Turn up Jack, tear up Jack, kick up Jack, cut up Jack. Um, and believe it or not, this goes back to the 1700s and possibly earlier. Oh. There's a card game called All Fours where turning over a jack, you know, the card just above a 10 and below a mm. queen, scores points. And this okay. card game, which was sometimes played for money, was played all throughout North America and Europe and from the 1600s forward. And versions of it are still played. Um, it's very popular in Trinidad. Uh, it goes by other names and has variations. In the U.S., 7-Up uh, is a version of it. And there's an expression where people would say that somebody who was willing to play this game against the devil and turn up Jack, meaning they didn't care about the consequences of winning the game or doing well at the game, even if they were playing the devil. So they would play the oh. devil and turn up Jack. That's as I understand Interesting. it. Interesting. Which would mean that you were scoring big and you were going to take everybody's money at the table, you and your partner, because it's a partner game. So it started with turn up Jack, because you're literally turning over the card, which is the Jack. But yeah. So yeah, over the that. years, that verb changed. And so... Turn up Jack became tore up Jack or tear up Jack and uh, raise up Jack and cut up Jack and uh, kick up Jack and uh, just it just changed. And the general idea went from uh, playing kind of risky game against the devil to just being um, uh, rambunctious or being rowdy. Yeah. Um, yes. And so now when you hear it, usually in the American South, it's just really about. Um, just being uh, usually used for kids or small animals. So just if you, as you've right, used it. Right, right. Yeah. To, so making a just mess. Just kind of not be behaving well. Very interesting. Well, a little fact that you might find interesting is that game, all fours, mm -hmm. is where we get the word Jack for that card in a deck of cards, the one after the 10 and before the queen. It used to be called oh, the knave. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yep, the knave. So in the 1600s, that word Jack migrated from this game all fours to just the rest of the deck and the rest of the card games in general. So, Julie, your family is part of a great long tradition of tearing up Jake or Jack. It certainly is, and that would um, uh, quite aptly describe this youngest cat that I have that tears up Jake <laughs> around the house all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do, don't they? They get the zoomies and go through yeah, the room. Yeah, they do. <laughs> I will pass that information along on that family saying. All Excellent. Right. 
Well, take care, Julie. Thank you for chatting with Thank us. Thank you. Take care. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Call us toll free in the United States and Canada, 24 hours a day, 877-929-9673. You can send us email to words at waywardradio.org, and you can find many other ways to reach the show at waywardradio.org slash contact. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. Ellen Joven is a self-described grammar nerd. She's taught English and communication skills for years. She's fluent in six languages and has studied more than 20 others. In fact, she's such a grammar nerd that four years ago, she stepped out of her New York apartment and set up a folding table near the 72nd Street subway station. She put out a big sign that said, Grammar Table, and invited people to just come up and talk with her about grammar. And in less than a minute, a couple had already come up to her to ask her to resolve a dispute about apostrophes. And she had so much fun that day talking with random strangers about grammar that she did it again. And then she moved to a different subway station. And, well, four years later, Joven has now set up her table in 49 states and had hundreds and hundreds of conversations with passersby. And she's compiled those adventures in a new book that's called Rebel with a Clause, Tales and Tips from a Roving Grammarian. Now, much of this book is a travel memoir, but along the way, she offers easy-to-understand advice about grammar, about adverbs and prepositions and whether to put one or two spaces after a period. And Grant, you'll be pleased to know that, for the record, she says two spaces after a period is the mom genes of punctuation. Oh, I see. I know you agree with that. Anyway, it's a grammar book with a heart. You know, she makes sure that uh, people know that grammar doesn't have to be intimidating. You can just relax and take a deep breath and think of grammar as your friend, that it's, it's there for clarity of communication. And she also makes the point that you really shouldn't judge people for their grammar because you just may be wrong yourself. And I was reading this book, Grant, and I just thought, why? What possesses somebody to stick a table out in public and invite people to come and ask questions? And then I thought, wait a minute, that's what we do (laughs) without the frequent flyer miles. (laughs) Right, right. Without the people brushing by headed for the subway, you're like, no time, no time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it sounds like a fun book. And I always like a travel log. I'm throwing a little grammar in there, too. That sounds like a good read. Yeah. You can find Ellen Joven, that's J-O-V-I-N, on the Internet. Her Twitter handle is at Grammar Table. And the book again, Martha? Rebel with a Clause, Tales and Tips from a Roving Grammarian. We'll link to that on our website at waywardradio.org, where you can also find all of our past episodes. And you can find a dozen ways to communicate with us at waywardradio.org slash contact. Hi there. You have a way with words. Hi. My name is Julia, and I'm calling from Denver, Colorado. Welcome to the show, Julia. What can we do for you today? So I have a question, kind of a spooky question, about comb graves. My parents and I were vacationing in central Tennessee, and we discovered that there's a really unique type of grave in that region, and they're called comb graves, C-O-M-B. And we were so curious what the origin of that name was. Comb graves? How did you come across them? Um, we were we were driving through some of the smaller towns in that region, and we saw them referenced on a historical plaque. So we decided to adventure and find one of the um, cemeteries where they're they're found. 
Yeah, and that, that part of Tennessee is particularly known for the comb graves. So describe them for us if you can. What do they look like? Yeah, so they're, they're also referred to as tent graves, which makes a little bit more sense because they're kind of mm-hmm. pitched like a tent, like a little triangle um, over like the actual grave itself. Um, but I was, we couldn't, we were so curious why the word comb is also used to describe them. So typically they have two long rectangular slabs of stone kind of leaning together to form a long peaked roof over the grave, right? Yeah. And yeah, the Central Tennessee is well known for them, although they do appear in nearby states as well. So this word comb, C-O-M-B, here is an American dialect word, and it does refer to that ridge of the roof where there's two long slabs come together. And that and other meanings of comb all descend from the rooster's comb. You know, that red thing that sticks up on the top of the head. So it kind of has like wobbly fingers, but the part of that red comb on a rooster's head that is transferred isn't the wobbly fingers, but it's the sticky up part. And so that lent that kind of semantic notion to the ridge of a roof. And it's used in architecture as well, not just in this, this word for a grave. It's also used, for example, in the ridge of earth sticking up between the ruts in a dirt road, if you've ever seen that. That ridge of earth in the middle that's a little grassy in between the ruts, that's also known as a comb. That's pretty interesting, I think, that the, the comb comes from the rooster's comb. Fascinating. So it's like making a little house for eternity? I mean, I've, I've seen versions of uh, house graves in Alaska where they're, where they're much more elaborate than that. They actually look like little houses. The roof shape has to do with uh, suggesting a home? Well, there's a fellow by the name of Dr. Richard C. Finch who's done a great deal of work on comb graves. And I have read a couple of his papers on this. And he doesn't know, and others don't know quite why folks started doing it. The earliest appear in around the 1820s. But it suggested it's perhaps more practical than that. It's just to keep the weather and critters off the graves. Hmm. Just just kind of a hmm. real basic notion. By the way, you can read his papers and see tons of pictures of comb graves on his website at greatrutabaga.com. That's G-R-A-T-E-R-U-T-A-B-A-G-A.com. His paper, The Tennessee Comb Grave Tradition, is fascinating and very readable uh, to people of all academic levels. Wow, I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah, that's Dr. Richard C. Finch. Yeah, and we'll link okay. to that on our website as well. So hope that helps, Julia. I, I, I'm kind of jealous. I would love to travel through central Tennessee, visiting small towns. I'm sure they're fascinating. <laughs> well, I highly recommend it. it they, were, they were really cool to see in person. Well, Julia, we appreciate your call. All right. Take care now. Be well. Yeah, thank you so much. Sure thing. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, if there's a word or phrase that's puzzling you, we'd love to talk with you about it. So call us, 877-929-9673, or send us an email. The address is words at waywardradio.org, or hit us up on Twitter. We're at wayward. Heather Kaufman sent us a tweet offering a really great way to end a long phone conversation. It goes, 
I'll let you go so you can glue your ears and legs back on. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess if somebody talks your ears off, then, you know. They talk your legs off, too? <laughs> I don't know about the legs part, <laughs> but I like that. I'll let you go so you can glue your ears and legs back on. Email words at waywardradio.org or send to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Crystal Ness from Huntsville, Alabama. Hi, Crystal. What's up? Um, I was calling because um, I have a term that my mother-in-law and my father-in-law use um, that I have never heard before. Okay. So um, they use this term when they're tucking my kids into bed, their gran- their grandchildren. Um, they, they said this with my husband when he was a child, too. Um, so instead of saying goodnight or night-night, like what my parents used to say to me, they say, I'll see you in the funny papers before they close the door. At at bedtime? At bedtime, yep. And what did they mean by that? I don't know. I guess they mean, you know, goodnight. It's sort of done in the same way um, as people would say goodnight or or night-night, you know, so it's kind of like, see you in the funny papers, and then they close the door. Um, (laughs) And I had never heard that before growing up. Oh, really? And you haven't heard it since? I only hear it from my mother-in-law, um, and when I asked her about it, she said that her mother and her father used to say it to her, mm-hmm. and my father-in-law said that his parents also said it to him. Yeah, well, it stretches back to the early 20th century. It's it's just kind of a, a jovial goodbye. It's not necessarily putting uh, little kids to bed, but really? uh, people would say, yeah, people would say that to each other, and, and so it was often originally kind of a sarcastic thing. You know, if you're in the funny papers, oh, okay. then, you know, you're a comic character. There were a lot of different versions of see you in this or that, like see you in church, which somebody might say sarcastically to somebody who doesn't go to church or see you oh. in jail and sometimes see you in the funny papers um, would have a sarcastic tone to it but uh, over time it's it's just uh, it's well in your case it turned into a sweet uh, nighttime uh, good night yeah it's very endearing I like that they say that to my kids mm-hmm. because it's just something special that they'll remember about their grandparents but yeah um, that's fascinating yeah so, yeah, see you in the funny papers, see you in the funny pages, see you in the funnies. All of those are versions of that. Yeah, the, the funny sheet. The funny sheet, yeah. The yeah, it was a much bigger I've deal. I've never heard of funny sheets. Yeah, that's, yeah, that term's almost 160 years old, uh, the, calling wow, it the, the funny papers. So do you still use it today? Um, I guess I should probably keep the tradition alive, shouldn't I? Um, yeah. She continues to, to say that to my kids, so... Um, you know, maybe when they're when they have children, I'll uh, I'll use the same term. So. Oh, yeah, that's really sweet. Yeah, tuck them in with that. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, Take care, Crystal. Crystal. Take care. Bye bye. All right, thanks. Bye bye. Eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Scott Randall in Everett, Washington. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the show. What's up? I am learning the Klingon language, and I require assistance. Um, (laughs) At the age of 61, I find myself having real trouble getting new vocabulary into my long-term memory. I have failed my level two certification from the Klingon Language Institute three times in the last two months, always because of my limited vocabulary. Do you have any tips for learning foreign vocabulary and keeping it in long-term memory? 
why are you learning Klingon? This is a real good place to start with this, Scott. I have been a Star Trek fan since it went into syndication in 1969. In 1985, yeah. the Klingon Dictionary came out, and I tried to learn it from that, but didn't do too well. In 2000, I discovered the Klingon Language Institute and dove back into it with the help of a mailing list and stuff, but it still wasn't easy enough. But now there are a lot of technological aids. Duolingo has a Klingon course. There's um, a dictionary app for my phone. Uh, there's a Klingon Learn Facebook page where I can ask questions. And so I've just really dived into it. Um, I'm, I'm determined to become fluent in Klingon. And are you having conversations in real time, um, spoken aloud with other people in Klingon? Only a little bit. With my limited vocabulary, I haven't joined the Zoom meetings that have actual conversations. Um, I've been focused more on translating things with a couple of Klingonist friends of mine, uh, one of whom, Kishkat, has introduced me to the gold list method. We're trying that, but it's too early to tell if it's going to help. Well, Scott, um, or do you go by Scott, or is there a different Klingon yes. word I should... Uh, my, my Klingon name is Yogtar, but that's hard for even Klingonists to say. <laughs> so, Yogtar, tell us about this um, this method that you're trying to use. The gold list method has you write down 20 short sentences, mm -hmm. each of which contains one word that you're trying to learn. So you do that on day one. Day two, you write another list of 20, day three, and so on. And oh. you keep doing that. And then on around day 14, you go back to your first list, and they say you will remember about 30% of those words. You take the ones you don't write and put them in the second list. And in two weeks, you're going to come back to that one while you still keep writing the new lists of 20 every time. And then when you go back to that list of 14 or so, you should remember about 30%. So you're then going to have a list of 10 or so that you write, and then a final list of about six or so. And that should allow mm -hmm. you to learn about three quarters of the words they say. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a pretty good method to me. What do you think, Grant? Well... One thing I'm noticing here as you're talking about this is that you are talking about a, I would call this a, an academic method of memorizing words, and but you're not talking about the fun method, the pleasurable methods. And this is an area that when anyone, whether learning Klingon or another language, really needs to think about. Um, as you can imagine, learning vocabulary has been extensively studied, both for first language learners and multilingual learners. So uh, there's a lot that we can transfer over to what you're doing, and anybody who's learning vocabulary can, mm -hmm. can apply. Um, what's important here is your literacy level and what you can read in the language. Are you reading in Klingon? Are you reading in the language that you're learning? Not what you're writing, not what you're producing. Up until our host became too ill, we were having meetings three times a week over Zoom where we would translate Hamlet from the original Shakespeare into English. Okay. And oh then goodness. we would all all take turns reading a passage out loud in Klingon to work on our pronunciation. Right. But are, are you enjoying? Are you enjoying this? 
Yes. The gold list articles that I read all say you need to make it fun. And that's why I'm doing it with a friend. Yeah. Okay, Scott, let's let's see, let's give you quickly give you some strategies here. First, you need to read or hear a word in context six to ten times before it has a chance of really sticking. And and even then it's in oh. passive vocabulary, not active. Meaning you're likely to know it when you see it but not necessarily able to produce it when you're speaking or writing. The other thing is try to think about whether or not you are truly enjoying what you're reading. Is it being forced on you or did you choose it? This is definitely a personal choice. I love working with Klingon. I love creating the sentences. I love reading my friend's sentences. And we've also got an expert Klingonist who hosts Pab Pinpo, the um, grammar boss hour every Friday. And so I take all the sentences that I did with my friends that I'm not sure are right, and I go through them with him. And he sets me straight on things. Well, that's a fantastic way to learn any language, you know. I mean, yeah. I mean, you have to have to assume that you're going to make plenty of mistakes, and some of them may be hilarious. But that's the way you learn by, by being. Uh, another thing I want to say to you, mistakes. Scott, I agree with Martha, and I want to say, how long did it take you to become fluent in English? Give yourself at least that long to be fluent in Klingon, not just to be able to speak comfortably, but to speak like an adult. Give yourself a break. That might be the best advice we can give you right now. <laughs> All right. You're doing great. You have done everything that possible here. It sounds fantastic. What a program you've created for yourself. Thank you very much. Okay. And if I can leave you with just one thought, that would be... That's the most accurate translation of you have a way with words. Oh, you got to give us that again. Well, Scott, good luck with your Klingon, and if the spaceship arrives to take you away, please take me with you, okay? <laughs> Thank you for your help. All right. Bye-bye. Siobhan. Uh, Bye. Siobhan. Bye-bye. <laughs> well, your prime directive is to boldly go to the telephone, 877-929-9673, or email us, words at waywardradio.org. Our team includes senior producer Stephanie Levine, engineer and editor Tim Felton, production assistant Rachel Elizabeth Weisler, and quiz guide John Chinesky. We'd love to hear from you no matter where you are in the world. Go to waywardradio.org contact. Subscribe to the podcast, hear hundreds of past episodes, and get the newsletter at waywardradio.org. Whenever you have a language story or question, our toll-free line is open in the U.S. and Canada. 1-877-929-9673 or send your thoughts to words at waywardradio.org Away With Words is an independent production of Wayward Inc., a nonprofit supported by listeners and organizations who are changing the way the world talks about language. Special thanks to Michael Breslauer, Josh Eccles, Claire Grotting, Bruce Rogo, Rick Seidenworm, and Betty Willis. Thanks for listening. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. Hey, listeners, we have a favor to ask. We'd love for you to fill out our listener survey at gum.fm slash words. Your feedback is crucial. It's quick, and it helps us make our show even better. It shapes our show, helps us plan, and ensures we're bringing you the content you love. That's G-U-M dot F-M slash W-O-R-D-S. Thanks for being a part of what we do.
Thank you.